All right, it's 7 o'clock. Let's get started. Good to see you all. A um, couple things. Uh, I, I have to... Stephanie's not here tonight because she's at some wedding shower. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so I'm in charge, and I actually have to go pick up my other son... Well, my, my real son-in-law. And um, my nephew from the airport by 8.30. So I'm going to want to be leaving by 8.10. I know a lot of you like to stick around and talk, and so do I, but tonight we can't do that. If Stephanie were here, we could, but we can't, so. That's Steve. <laughs> Steve says he's going to leave early because he, he, he already knows how Ruth ends. So <laughs> he's seen this movie before. Uh, the other thing is I would encourage you to have your Bibles in front of you either on the phone or it just in, in uh, cause I, I am going to read literally every word of the Ruth story and, um, cause I think it's worth it to read it all and to be able to get it, some things here. I had fun today at my GCU, uh, uh, ministerial communication class. They're all presenting their final projects, which is a 10 minute sermon on a passage of their choice. For the last three weeks, we've been listening to these, and eight each Wednesday and eight each Friday. Today, I had one sermon out of Ruth, and I had one sermon out of Romans 8, and so I was taking notes to be able to use their stuff in, in our stuff here. So uh, anyway, have your Bibles open to Ruth chapter 1. I'll give you just a little bit of background and intro. Uh, as I mentioned Sunday, I think um, Ruth is considered some of the best storytelling in the history of literature by even people who aren't that interested in, in the Bible. Um, many believe that Samuel wrote Ruth, but that's problematic because Ruth records some things that happened after Samuel died. That's what scholars say, and so that becomes prob problematic. Um, most people think that it was written during the David-Solomaic period of the, the kingship of David and Solomon. Maybe Nathan wrote it, that's been one supposition. Another pretty strong supposition is a woman wrote it because of the keen feminine perspective that you have in this narrative. Uh, it's doubtful, especially in that time and in that cultural context <laughs> that a man could write this way um, and, and really capture uh, the feminine aspect of, of, this, of this book. Uh, it's widely considered unusual also that in a cultural context like this, we're talking 32, 3300 years ago, it's widely uh, considered unusual that uh, a story that is told about two faithful and committed women, Naomi and Ruth, would not only be written, but also survive. So that's something that you should take note of as well. Uh, the date of the Ruth story happening is late judges, so uh, sort of, uh, concurrent with the book of Judges or maybe just barely post Judges just getting into perhaps a bit of the um, uh, of the Saul's uh, reign um, uh, last thing is that when we get to the end of this reading and some comments I'll make I'm going to summarize nine attributes of Ruth that we should embrace and learn from and I actually wrote them out on sheets of paper here that you can grab at that time if, if it would help you to not have to take notes for you note takers or if you just want to be able to follow along with it we could take a 30 second break if you want to come up here or, we, or maybe uh, Tina can pass them out or something back, back there or you can 
get up and do it now if you want. <laughs> sure, if you want to. I'm going to start reading, though. Are you all right? Yeah. Here, Rich is going to help you. Okay. Thanks, guys. So let's start in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled, so there's a hint as to when it took place, there was a famine in the land, a famine in the land of Judah, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, that area. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So that's close, but it's different. And he and his wife and his two sons. So the four of them left for Moab because there was a famine. The name of the uh, man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Has anybody ever met a family where they have two sons and their names are Malon and Chilion? <laughs> no, and you're going to find out why in just a second. Okay. Uh, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the, women were left without, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the, from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in, in uh, Judah, in Bethlehem, and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. So uh, first of all, uh, I think um, Ira knows that this name Orpah, they tried to name Oprah, Orpah, right? And they got it wrong. Isn't that? Oh, so yeah, so that's, yeah. So just so you know, uh, Oprah is a biblical person, so apparently. So. I don't know about that. Anyway, so um, it was very common in ancient times to mo just move to a new region or country when there was a famine. So this is a normal thing, but the focus is on this one family. Uh, Moabites are descended from a guy named Lot. He had a son named Moab. Okay. Do you remember Lot? Do you all remember who Lot is? Okay. If you want to know about Lot, a little bit more about Lot, read Genesis 19. However, let me warn you, um, Genesis 19 is one of the uh, sickest chapters in, <laughs> of Scripture, I think, I've ever read in my life that anybody could read. And I don't mean like sick the way young people use that word. Ooh, that's sick, like cool. It's like really sick, like you might get sick reading it. There's some strange stuff that go on in, goes on in Genesis chapter 19. So now, now that I've said that, uh, probably all of you go home, I gotta read chapter 19, okay? It'll be like watching HBO or something. Um, anyway, so Lot is Abraham's nephew and, and it's the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing. Lot lost his wife because she turned around and looked at the destruction. And she turned to salt, and, and then uh, he did some weird things with his daughters, and then his daughters did some weird things with him. It's strange. It's some really strange stuff. So, um, Now, this move to Moab was meant to be temporary, but it lasted 10 years. 
lasted 10 years, and then it ends in disaster, because both her husband and her, and her sons die. Uh, that's Naomi's. Um, and the Lord uh, then finally comes to the aid of his people. He's providing food again. The famine is over. So she decides, I'm going to return uh, to my home. Uh, that word translated return also means to repent. In other words, she's going to turn around and go back. Okay? So now look at 8 through 18. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the, may the Lord uh, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I, I am too old to have a husband. If I should uh, say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter for me to, uh, to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Oprah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, "See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law." But Ruth said, "Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go." Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now in verse 8, notice that Naomi is actually praying for these two Moabite women. Uh, here's something else about Naomi. Can you imagine losing both your husband and your sons and still uh, desire to pursue God? I, I've, that's something that I've always just thought was remarkable about Naomi. So we see in this passage that Naomi is looking out for these two women and still loving God. So that should, be, that should impress something upon us. Um, now, she doesn't know for sure that things are going to be better in Jerusalem, but it is common sense. If she's hearing that things are better, she might as well go back. At least she may be able to reestablish her community there in her home. And then verse 13, Naomi has this view of God that a lot of people today have, that, that understand cognitively. They understand the grace of God, but they, they don't understand it um, in an affective way. She has that view that sort of says to herself, Bad things have happened to me, so I must be a problem in God's eyes. I must have done something wrong because God's mad at me. But Naomi is also a pragmatist. I mean, just listen to her argument uh, to her two daughters-in-law. She says, there's no way that my sons, once they're born, if I have any more sons, once they're born and they make it to 20 years old, there's no way that even at 20, if you wait for them, they're not going to marry 40-year-old women. Okay, they're just they're just not going to they're not going to do that. And, and you're not going to wait around for them either. 
You don't have time to do that either. Now, stranger things happen in ancient times, but she was also just being pragmatic about that. So it says that Ruth clung to Naomi. That's the same word that's used in Genesis for cleave. Like when a husband and wife, uh, the two become one flesh, they, they, they cleave together. Okay? And, and if you listen to what Naomi says, or Ruth says to Naomi, she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Um, the only thing that will ever separate me from you is death. That sounds like a marriage covenant, right? Isn't that interesting? Okay. So, again, though, the most remarkable thing, she's a Moabite, and she says, I will devote my, I'm so certain that I need to stay with you, Naomi, that I will even devote myself to your God, to Yahweh. I mean, how much more could she do? And then 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, anybody know what the name Naomi means? Anybody? Pleasant or lovely. Anybody know what Mara means? Bitter. bitter. Yeah, everybody knows that one. Okay. I'm not pleasant or lovely anymore now. I'm just bitter. Okay. Um, and let me ask you this. Have, have any of you ever felt like you've gone away full, but you've come back empty? That's the American vacation, by the way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> That's what happens when we go on vacation. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, Naomi went away full and came back empty. So she gets us. You, have you seen those ads that say that Jesus gets us? Okay, Naomi gets us too. So Jesus is not the only one. I just wanted to make that little pitch for you. All right, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose delight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men who were in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Talking about Ruth. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except a short rest. So Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, which means it's possible that he's going to have some sort of kindred responsibility toward Naomi and Ruth, which we're going to talk about much more in chapters 3 and 4. But can you imagine being so impoverished that you have no idea where your next meal is coming from? And that's Naomi and Ruth in this particular situation. So uh, Levitical law, this was common knowledge to all of the people in that context. Uh, they didn't even have to think about it, although they didn't necessarily like it. But uh, Levitical law had this law about gleaning. So 
when you're, when you're harvesting anything, but in, in this case it's barley, but it would be like grapes as well. They talk a lot about this when harvesting grapes. When you go and pick the grain, when you go and pick the fruit, whatever it is that you're harvesting, anything that you drop, God says you have to leave on the ground for the poor and for the sojourner, for the foreigner, to be able to come and pick it up. They get to follow along after um, the, the, the harvesters and they get to glean from that. And then also, if you have a, uh, let's say you have, I have a friend who has a winery down in um, Wilcox, 320 acres, okay, of grapes. And um, he, uh, it, it, of course, there's corners of, the, of this 320 acres. Well, if, if he were Jewish, he would have to leave the corners for anybody to be able to harvest from as well. He wouldn't even be able to send harvesters in there. Uh, the corners, like about 10%, does that 10% sound familiar? About 10% of the land would be left for people to just come and be able to uh, pick from. So you gotta leave what you drop, and then you gotta leave the outer average, uh, edges, primarily the, the corners. Um, how many of you have dogs? My dogs are gleaners, okay? And, and the thing that they glean the most for me is I, I, I like grapes, and so grapes, you know, you pull up a bunch of grapes, you pull one off and another one falls, they're right there. They're gleaning grapes, and I have to leave it on the floor. That's the Levitical law for the, for the dogs. And the other thing, of course, is, is when I'm eating Cheetos, I pull a couple of Cheetos out, one goes on the floor, and so they get grapes and Cheetos. So that's kind of their, their uh, between-meals diet. Uh, if you want to know more about gleaning and the laws re regarding gleaning, um, I know that Leviticus is one of the most popular um, books in the Bible for people to read. Uh, Leviticus 19 is actually just, it's one of the great chapters in the Bible. Uh, you should read it. And by reading Leviticus 19, you will get an insight into God's heart and you will get an insight into how Jesus and why Jesus taught what he taught in the New Testament. Just read uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 19. I think it would be really helpful. But here's the thing. Not all farmers welcomed this practice of gleaning. Sometimes they would set up guards and not let people come and glean. Um, especially when foreigners were involved. They didn't like the foreigners. So there is some tension. Ruth knows that she's taking her life uh, possibly into her hands by going over there and trying to glean. So... Uh, but understand, uh, we see also in these verses, there was a decorum that Ruth brought that impressed those who were working in the vineyard. Three things. They knew that she had come with Naomi, gave up everything, gave up her home, all of her comfort, uh, everything that she was familiar with and came with Naomi. So that impressed them. She came and she respectfully asked for permission to be able to glean. That was the second thing. And then notice that they, no, they, they took notice of the fact that she worked very hard. So they were impressed with her work ethic as well. So what they're saying is that this woman, Ruth, has, has a very strong character. So verses 8 through 17. Then Boaz goes up to Ruth and says, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that, I should, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz, Boaz answered her, 
All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings uh, you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to, to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And, in the me- and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip, uh, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and she passed uh, and, she, and, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, but do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, of barley. Uh, It's interesting and ironic to me, Boaz's actions here. He says, stay in my fields, be part of the community of the women that I know. Uh, I have told the young men that they can't hurt you, and in fact, they're supposed to protect you. These are exactly what a woman in her situation would desperately want and need, and what God would call any of his men to do. And yet I find it ironic that in today's ethos, it could be interpreted as problematic um, because we're not allowing Ruth to be her own person and to be strong and tough. I just find the the tension in that so interesting, okay? Um, Let me make a point about that. A little rabbit trail. You all know how I love to chase rabbits, okay? Uh, Does anybody know who Patricia Ireland was? Anybody? Patricia Ireland. Come on now. Michelle, you know? Actress? No. Model? No. That's Kathy Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Ira? Patricia Ireland is um, probably, uh, I thought, the most well-known historical feminist ever. And she is the founder of the National Organization of Women. You heard of the National Organization of Women? <laughs> Okay, so you don't know, she, she had a very famous quote. At, nobody knows this quote. I didn't even have to look it up. This is how famous it is. And how, yes, and, and how old I am and how old you are, apparently. Okay, here's the quote. A woman needs a man as much as a fish needs a bicycle. Now, here's what I find so funny. Uh, about 20 years after she said that, she got married. Then she had some splaining to do. And she did. She tried to explain it away, but everybody was like, yeah, hypocrite. Anyway, I digress. So, also, now Boaz is allowing Ruth to glean more than just what the law calls for. Gleaning from the sheaves was strictly protected from these gleaners and foreigners. You, you, could, you could pick up what was dropped and you could pick up from the edges, but you couldn't pick up from the sheaves. The sheaves were like, that's where the easiest harvesting was. And he's saying, you can go clean in the sheaves. So um, you know how some, years ago on television, uh, supermarkets used to say that their meat 
met higher standards than the USDA minimums. Did you ever remember that? You know, okay. This is what Boaz is doing. He's saying, I know this is what the law says, but I'm going to go further than the law. I'm not just meeting the minimum standards of the law. I'm going further than the law. And how much is an ephah? An ephah is just less than 10 gallons. It's a lot. So the New Bible Commentary says that what she took was about... Uh, was worth about two weeks wages just in that one day she gained two weeks wages and then finally notice that even with all this special attention Ruth is kind of keeping her distance she's being very respectful speaking to Boaz more formally than casually accepting his favor without drawing too close so I think she's I would read this as she's remaining intelligently cautious about uh, Boaz and then look at verses 18 through 23. And she took it up and went to her, into, her, into the city. Her mother-in-law said, uh, saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave to Naomi what food she had left over after being satisfied at the meal. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not uh, forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi, that means you get to stay here for the rest of the harvest and, and glean. Um, and Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, lest in, in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Um, the Redeemer. What's a Redeemer? A Redeemer or a kinsman Redeemer is an important Jewish principle. Um, God set up his law because he wants his people who have been harmed by death, harmed by some sort of injustice, or harmed by hard times, to have places to go that they can rely on to be able to look for help, to find provision, support, defense, and restoration. It's also a picture of the grand redemption that God always provides for his people. There's a, there's a picture of the gospel in this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Um, a few different ways a, kins a kinsman redeemer can do his duty. Uh, if a family member has to sell their property in a time of need, the redeemer would buy it back from them and for them so that they could keep the property in, in the family. So it would be like if my brother ran into financial trouble and had to sell his house, and I could, I would go and buy the house for him and leave him in the house so that he could keep the, the property. Um, rather than him selling it to somebody else and losing the property rights. Uh, here's another one. If a family member had to sell him or herself into slavery during bad times, the Redeemer would buy them back out of slavery. Uh, if a family member was the victim of a murder, the Redeemer would be the one to lead the charge for the investigation and for justice. So this is an ancient form of Harry Bosch. He'd go all Harry Bosch on him. If you don't know who Harry Bosch is, I really, I'll pray for you. And then, um, if a wife lost her husband, the Redeemer would marry the widow, have children, and make sure the family name is carried on. Notice that Naomi does not have a husband or her sons. 
So you know that's going to come into play here eventually. And verse 21 is great news. Naomi and Ruth are going to have food and income for the rest of the harvest season, which is like two months. That's, that's gold in that context. That's amazing. People are just trying to get by day by day, and they know now that they've got something coming in for the next two months. Okay? Uh, this would allow them to build relationships in the community while also being protected financially and physically. Um, and I just want you to consider, this doesn't happen for Naomi without Ruth's commitment and conviction to her. Okay? And then verse 22, lest you be assaulted. You know, you got to stay in Boaz's fields lest you be assaulted. That was an all too genuine and common occurrence in this context, unfortunately. So there's this uh, genuine relief of protection. And then verse 23, keep close to the young women. Again, the verb is to cleave, cleave to them. All right, here we go. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, said to her mother, uh, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you, you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies when he goes to sleep. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. This sounds a little odd, right? A little strange, okay. So... Understand, between 2 and 3, several weeks have passed uh, from the end of chapter 2 to now as they are now threshing what they have harvested. So they're no longer harvesting, now they're cleaning it up. It was also common, understand, for parents to, to uh, do the marriage bidding for their children in Old Testament times. Consider how Samson even asked his parents to go get him a wife in the Samson story in Judges. Okay, So this is Naomi sensing that Boaz, who is a redeemer of their family, he's not going to make the first move for some reason. For whatever reason, he's not going to make the first move. So Naomi is hoping to create a bit of an opening for Ruth with Boaz. So she's looking out for Ruth. She's hoping that his redeemer status would eventually come into play. Now, I will tell you also, though, that this plan needed considerable courage from Ruth it's a pretty forward plan to remain undetected yet figure out where he's going to sleep for the night. Uh, go there only after he is eaten and then wake him up by removing the covers from his feet. How many of you hate it when somebody moves the covers off of your feet when you're sleeping? Okay, yeah, all right. So it's like not a good start. He's going to wake up and be kind of annoyed maybe. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, the idea is that hopefully Boaz will get some romantic feelings at that moment, or at least maybe he'll be called out into his duty as a redeemer. All the while, though, Ruth is facing potential rejection, and he may say, you can't even come around anymore, because so that could be a problem. So it's a little bit risky here. Verses 7 through 13. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, notice how many uh, men in the Old Testament, they, their heart gets merry with wine. You know, we should have, once a year, we should have an Old Testament night at Redemption Arcadia. What do you say? 
it's just not on this property. I know. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, so when he was married, he went down to the end of the heap of grain. Then she, Ruth, came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now... It is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. He's in, a, he's in a position closer to you than I actually am. Remain tonight, and in the morning I will see if he will redeem you. And if he does, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Ruth boldly calls him out as a kinsman redeemer of her family, or of Naomi's family. She says, spread your wings over your servant. That's also language used for God and his protection of his people. He would spread his wings over them. And we saw that in verse 1. I mean, in chapter 1, we saw that language of God spreading his wings over his people, showing his favor. So she's saying, I'm asking you to show favor to me and to protect me. But also, the word wings can be translated the corner of a garment which is common language used in requesting matrimony and protection. So she's also, uh, most commentators would say, she's saying, hey, if you're my redeemer, will you marry me? It's kind of an odd marriage pr- proposal. So uh, women, if, if, you, if you're single and you got a guy that just seems to be slow on the draw, just say, hey, would you be my redeemer and just see what he says? That might be, might be a way of kind of pushing him along. This is pretty bold, though. So Ruth is no longer keeping her distance. And then verse 10 to me is so interesting. Boaz apparently had feelings for Ruth, but never made a move because he's sitting there going, I'm too old. She's going to go after some young stud that's got some money or something. You know, she's not going to like me. I'm just an old guy. So now he's flattered, and I'm guessing he's pretty amped up about this. And then verses 12 and 13, there's no hesitation whatever from Boaz. He says, I'll do it. But he says, there's actually another redeemer in our family who has first position. I'm in second position. So he has first right of refusal. We have to go to him first. Okay. Now, why was this first place dude not mentioned until now? Did, Na- until now? did Naomi not know about him? Well, she probably did know him. But perhaps she also believed that he wouldn't want the responsibilities that would come with being the redeemer. And we're going to see that that's true in chapter 4. He's a younger man, but he's in a more precarious position than Boaz uh, was. So that introduces the other thing that Boaz knows is going on and he respects. Boaz respects this. He knows this. He's got this figured out. By marrying Ruth, it means that Boaz is also obligated to take care of Naomi. This is not just about Ruth. Okay? He's got to take care of Naomi in every possible redeemer way possible. So he understands Ruth's desire to continue to provide for her mother-in-law, and he respects that in Ruth as well. So look how this chapter wraps up, 14 through 18. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came 
to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garments you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, uh, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today or in the next morning. I want you to notice here the desire on both Ruth and, and Boaz's parts uh, for integrity. They understood the appearance of integrity. Regardless of what happened, they understood the appearance of integrity. Uh, the New Testament says in a couple places that even if you've done nothing wrong, which they had done nothing wrong, you are to avoid, we are to avoid even the appearance of evil and are to conduct our ways, ourselves in ways that are above reproach. They're practicing that in the Old Testament here. And she's a Moabite woman in, in doing this. She's living under the laws of, of Yahweh now. Besides, he's going to look into this matter the very next day so that they can wait. But again, Boaz refuses to let Ruth go away without another gift to give to Naomi. Gives her another, um, another batch of barley. So now this gets pretty fun. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now Boaz had gone up to, gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, <clears throat> tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. So you notice that there are two, redeem, two of these Redeemer issues playing out here of the four that I mentioned. Buy the land so that Naomi keeps her family asset and has income, and then marry Ruth so that the family name of Naomi and her husband will perpetuate. Um, it's a kind of strange ending to the negotiation, though, isn't it? It's, it's almost like Boaz was playing his cards very specifically. He had sort of a strategy for how he was going to do this. So verse 1, he sits at the gate. The gate to the city is where the elders... They would open the gates in the morning, and that's where the elders and the wise men of the community would gather every day. And it's where a lot of business would be transacted, and a lot of court cases would be negotiated and adjudicated. So the ancient city gate is very similar to today, our golf course and happy hour. Okay, just think of it that way. Okay? When this guy was asked to sit, so Boaz says, sit down here. Nobody had to tell him. There's a very serious matter that we're about to engage in. So 
So he sits down, he knows something very serious is coming. Then he knew it was really serious when Boaz then went and summoned 10 elders as well. The 10 elders are very similar to our contemporary jury. And so it's game on. In the first place, Redeemer initially accepts, but when he hears that it's also, it also means marrying Ruth, implying that he must also give Ruth a son in order to carry on the name of Elimelech, okay, he realizes that he stands to lose the land he is buying to that son. That son then gets to be the heir of the land he's buying, and at the same time, under Levitical law, he would lose his right to his inheritance from his father. So by marrying Ruth and giving her a son, he's losing everything in terms of assets, in terms of property. So he believes he can't bear these financial burdens and losses. But Boaz has not only the will to do it, but probably the resources. He's been at this game a lot longer. He probably has a much larger 401k that he can access. So just so you know, uh, by the way, just so you know, if, if I, I would redeem Jackie like that. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't care if I lost everything. I just want to make sure that you understand that. Yeah, Ira? That's right. That's exactly right. So he's actually abandoning his own right. He's abandoning his whole family. He's abandoning everything that he, all of his identity, he's abandoning. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's why he's saying, I'm not going to do it. So, Rich? Uh, wouldn't the inheritance always pass to the firstborn? Not in this case. Because he's, he's fulfilling this redeemer status. Now, this... In the meantime, it doesn't stop him from acquiring assets. So he, he could build up a, a, pretty, uh, a pretty nice portfolio in the meantime, absent this property that he would lose, potentially. And by the way, if he dies, he, what good is the property to him anyway? His son, uh, his son will get it. That's great. But um, he would lose the inheritance of his father. But like I said, in the meantime, he could build up his own, his own uh, liquidity and, and, and uh, portfolio. So, verses 7 through 12. Now, this was the common custom in, in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Y'all got that, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. This is everything Ira was just saying. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah 
because of the offspring of the Lord will give you by the name of the, by um, this young woman. Okay, so the sandal thing back then for them was like us signing and notarizing a contract. Have, have you ever had to have something notarized? This is how they would notarize something in, in, in ancient times. So any of you, the next time you negotiate a deal, once you've signed all the papers, just slip off your shoe and hand it to the other person and just see what happens. And then report back to me. I'd love to know what, would, what, that, what that would be like, okay? Um, so the giving of the shoe to the other is a sign or a symbol of new possession. It's, it's just it's symbolic of the fact that ownership is transferring. And, and then you see that um, he has to bear these sons as the sons of Elimelech. So the name perpetuates. His sons with Ruth will not be the sons of Boaz. They will be recorded that way in the genealogies. Um, but for the legal purposes, they will be the sons of Elimelech. And it's interesting, the language of Rachel and Leah and how they built Israel, they were, giving, they were the ones that gave us the sons who became the 12 tribes. So there's a reference to Israel's history there in Genesis. <clears throat> and Ruth will build Israel by, we will see, being a part of the line of King David. And the line of King David was also the line of who? Jesus. Okay? And it's interesting also that Judah and Tamar are brought up here. Um, any of you remember the story of Judah and Tamar from Genesis 38? Again, one of my favorite chapters of Scripture is, is Genesis. And I love 37 through 50. Some people think 38 is a random placement there. I don't think it is. I think that that was placed there to help uh, Judah, who was a rat fink to Tamar. He was an absolute rat fink to Tamar. She had to be very clever to get him. He was supposed to be a redeemer to Tamar, and he was shirking his redeemer responsibilities. So she became very clever to um, get him to do his duty as the redeemer. You should read the story. It's really fantastic. Um, she had to do it very cleverly, and of course, that resulted in Perez, which becomes, again, the line of Boaz and the line of David and, and all of that. Um, but I believe that 38 was placed in there so that Judah learned his lesson, so that later on in the story of Joseph, you see that Judah actually becomes a stand-up guy. So it's like he's learning his lesson in 38, so he becomes a stand-up guy uh, later on. How many of you have had to learn your lesson in life so that then you could become a stand-up person. Yeah, see how that works? Okay. So, Perez gets born to Tamar, who is an ancestor of Boaz, who would now become an ancestor of David and of Jesus. Uh, 13 through 17. <clears throat> so, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has, left, uh, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. <laughs> she is more to you than seven sons. She lost two sons, gained a Ruth, and look what's happening to her. Okay? She's more, than, more to you than seven uh, sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi 
the, um, the, uh, they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So not only is this an awesome story, but it's, it's, it's key biblical history. It's part of the messianic story. And Ruth, Ruth made this happen. And then just to finish, 18 through 22, this is the author making sure that the readers and the historians have a proper and accurate record. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. I just wanted to show off that I could read Old Testament names. So, now, Ruth, look at your sheet there if you're interested. Uh, And I want you to hear me very clearly on this. These nine attributes of Ruth are not attributes that just women are called to, but all of God's people are called to this. It just so happens that it's Ruth who embodies all of these um, characteristics, these attributes. Okay? So in verses 1, 15 through 18, Ruth was willing to give up what she knew, what she understood, and what she was comfortable with in order to be committed and loyal to somebody. Um, Madison Murray writes this. And this is, this is kind of hard to hear, but I'll bet you if you really think about it, you'd say, yeah, I think that's true. It, I, I will tell you, in 64 years, I think it's been true for me. We generally have the most joy in the relationships that take the most work. We don't like that idea of having to work at relationships, right? Especially when it comes to romantic relationships. What, what we want is a soulmate. That's what we want. I want a soulmate. You all know what, you know, you know what soulmate is code speak for? Soulmate is code speak for, I don't have to work at this relationship. Okay, how many of you have had a long, sustained relationship where you didn't have to do any work at all? It's just not realistic. But we're living in this fantasy land. And the true joy comes from those relationships that we actually invest in, that we commit to, that we're loyal to. So that's important. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. When Naomi was at the end of her rope, finding life bleak and pointless, Ruth was willing to staunchly, faithfully stand beside her. That's a picture of the faithfulness of people in the church standing beside people who have lost their hope. But we're willing to prop them back up with with hope. Chapter 2, verse 7. Ruth was willing to humbly work than to demand attention or play the victim. I feel like if this was the 21st century, Ruth would have gone to the edge of the, uh, of the, of the uh, harvesting fields and said, I'm a victim, just give me everything that you guys have picked because I deserve it because I'm a victim. Okay? I'm a little cynical at times, I know. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 13. Ruth was filled with gratitude rather than a feeling of entitlement. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. What Ruth did in secret, or what some people would say what Ruth did backstage without any fanfare, taking care of and remaining loyal to Naomi, this was eventually blessed publicly and blessed more than tenfold. Her character when no one was looking actually paid dividends. Chapter 2, verse 18, Ruth passes the blessings she receives onto others rather than hoarding the blessings. 
Chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Ruth listens under wise counsel rather than asserting her rights and desires. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Ruth did as her mother-in-law asked. Ruth did as her mother-in-law asked. That might be the first and only time in the history of humanity that that has ever happened. It's in the Bible, y'all. And then verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, Ruth recognizes that appearances, though deceptive, can be realities for other people, which can cause huge problems. So she exercises prudence and discretion. So here you go. In this story, Ruth is a type of us, or should be. Should be a type of all of us. While, in a sense, Boaz is a type of Jesus. And the gospel. He is, he is putting everything he has on the line in order to redeem somebody who he very easily could have said is not necessarily worthy of it. Who he very easily could have said, not going to do it like the first guy did. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Jesus, uh, God the Father, God the Father gave up his only son in order to adopt those who really aren't his sons and daughters to become his sons and daughters. And that's what Boaz does here, although he does it through marriage and his redeemer status. But he, he puts everything on the line for her. And so that's a beautiful picture of the gospel as well. Um, Ruth is an extraordinary woman. I love this book and I love the story it tells and I love the lessons that we can learn from it. So let me pray and we'll see you Sunday morning. Uh, God, thank you for um, recording this story in your word, somehow protecting it, just as you protected Ruth and Naomi in this story. So God, we thank you for that, and uh, just pray that you would bless us and show us your favor as well. And we thank you for Jesus and all that he's done for us as well. Um, As Paul says, I just pray that we would be worthy of the calling of the gospel in our lives and and that we would uh, show that. Uh, in this faith community. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next week we get to do Deborah, and Michelle's going to help me with that, and the following week is the last week of this series, and we're going to do Wisdom with Ann Wheeler, who's going to help me with that. All right, go in peace.